0: My name is Cindy Canomas, and this is my story. I'm the oldest of six siblings, and about age six, my parents divorced. It was an ugly divorce, especially ugly for my younger brother. My brother was given to my father, and my sister and I went with my mother. Fortunately for my sister and I, there was a strong grandmother in there who took us in for a little over a year. While we were with her, she exposed us to Sunday school and Bible school, And we heard all about the stories of a loving God and a Jesus who could save us. I accepted Jesus as my Savior, and I was baptized in that church in San Diego. At age 12-ish, my mother remarried and had twins with my stepdad, and we moved from San Diego to Cherryville, Kansas. Shortly thereafter, another move, this time to Kansas City— I was in junior high, and Kansas City was right in the middle of racial discord, and I was more traumatized than ever. My mom and stepdad were making bad decisions, and it looked as if they were headed for a divorce. In looking back at those years, the memories are all about the various people that God placed into my path who helped me each time I ran away from home, and those were many. All the homes were safe, nurturing, and each person who helped me counseled me correctly. God was looking out for me. Fast forward, still in Missouri, I married at age 20 and had my firstborn son. Life, I thought, would be good now, until it wasn't. My husband was killed in a car accident when my son was two years of age. I was young and widowed with a two-year-old child. I was determined that my son would have a decent upbringing and that I would do whatever I needed to do to make that happen. Life at that point was just okay. Fast forward a few more years, I met someone in court while paying a ticket for making an illegal left-hand turn. I dated and later married this man after he and my son had quite a lengthy conversation about my marital status. My second son was born with spina bifida, and I didn't even know what those words meant the morning of his birth, but I had a crash course immediately. My grandmother said, Cindy, God will never put on you more than you can bear but I remembered thinking that God might have missed it on this one. My oldest son was now five and he needed my attention, but the number of surgeries and medical conditions and hospitalizations of my second son were immediate and I couldn't move, but one direction at a time. My husband was a business owner and traveled for work. So this was a problem. God kept me in this position for 21 years, all the while placing people in my life to provide me with help and support. One who stayed at my home frequently to help me invited me to church for the first time since my youth. She lived in the inner city and attended church there. On Sundays, I ended up taking my boys, uh, my boys to her church. It was awesome, and I loved it. I felt God so strong, and I needed him so much during those years. Again, he placed me where I was supposed to be with the people I was supposed to be with. My second son passed away when he was 21. My marriage had become more of an arrangement, and my oldest son was deprived of a mother and father for most of his life, and it was beginning to show. I ended up divorcing after 28 years of marriage. My life changed so drastically after my son's death and my divorce, I ended up staying on and off in Mexico where I had purchased a home. I planned on being a permanent resident there after I retired from my school administrator job. And then I met Monty. We met in 2006 and married in 2008. I was cruising along again, thinking I could plan for how life would be until I couldn't. In 2011, I had a crazy motorcycle accident that would change my life again. During that time, I'd had 12 surgeries by three different specialists to put my face and surrounding bone structure back together. Yet all the while, even when the doctors who cared for me in the beginning of that journey were less than optimistic, God allowed me to have such a peace. That was nothing less than miraculous. In reflecting back, I'm so grateful for this crazy ride. I've been allowed to meet some incredible individuals, and even though the journey hasn't always been easy, God's always had his hand upon me, and I know he'll continue to be there for me and with me until it's my time to go. My name is Cindy Konomas, and this is my story.
1: It takes a special kind of spiritual strength to be able to say, I'm grateful to God for that journey. When we all like to have a little bit of that? The scripture this morning is offering us that strength. So there's an old church tradition uh, to do the scripture reading and for everyone to stand in honor of the scripture reading. And, and since we're studying our passage from Acts, we're going to read it all at the start today. I thought, why don't we do that? So let us stand together in honor of God's word as we read the entire passage we'll be studying today. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 17. It so it's about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the Apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. The night before Peter was to be put on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awake him and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat. And follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time, he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard post and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. Then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses uh, this is really true," he said. "The Lord has sent His angel and saved me from Herod and from what the church leaders had planned to do to me." When he realized, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who had where many had gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everybody, "Peter is standing at the door." You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, and declared, it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then he went to another place. The word of the Lord. Well, have a seat. Thank you. This is one of the great stories of biblical history. The apostle Peter rescued from prison for a second time if you've read the book of Acts up to this point. He goes to the church where they've been praying for him. They can hardly believe it's him. The servant leaves him standing out on the street. And after this, he goes safely away into hiding. One Bible scholar said uh, such a best-kept secret about where he went that even the Bible doesn't seem to know after this where Peter went after this event. This passage might be preached with this final thought, that when you serve God in this world, he will protect you. That might be a final thought you could put to this message, except for the first two verses. Do you remember the first two verses? About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. Now, why wasn't James saved? This seems really upside down to a passage where someone who serves God gets rescued. How can a story meant to encourage us to serve God and know that he'll protect us follow on the heels of two verses about someone who served God and wasn't protected So grateful for the the story that Cindy shared with us. We've had lots of folks share my stories through the years, haven't we? We've had folks stand up here and say that God saved them from killing themselves. But we've also had stories from the surviving family members of people who took their own life. We've had healing testimonies. People say that God saved them from dying. But let me tell you that I've also done a lot of funerals in this room. I'll do one this week. We've had testimonies of people that say God saved their marriage, but we've also had testimonies from folks who are divorced. We've had testimonies of careers launched and careers that stalled out and were lost. Can we rightly say, serve God and he will protect you from harm? It doesn't appear so. It appears we can say, sometimes, but not all the time. Which will have some of you throwing up your hands and saying, well, then what's the point of following God? Some of you have called me in your dark hour of the night and said, what's the point of having faith if it all turns out the same? The point is, is that God tells us the truth. That's why we follow him. Because he tells us the truth we need to hear so much. He tells us the truth that saves us. And when we get away from that truth, we wreck Whatever life we have left Might have a long life left Might have a short life left But when we get away from the truth He brings us Whatever we have left is spoiled And here's the truth that we need To live right side up in the world Are you ready for it? This life Is not about you Don't feel bad It's not about me either It's not even about us It is about Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Now many of you already know this, whether you know that you know it or not. Those of you who are grandparents, those of you who have grandkids, you love those grandkids. And the reason you love them is so that you can get yet another world's greatest grandparent mug. <laughs> no, or not. The reason you love your grandkids is so that in this nurture of love, they will grow up to be brain surgeons. And if that kid doesn't grow up to be a brain surgeon, then you wasted your love. No, probably not. The reason that you love your grandkids is because you are reflecting the love of God to this precious person. You're reflecting the heart of Jesus who said, let the children come to me. Those of you who serve the poor, you build houses in the inner city, you send meals to Mexico, you rebuild people's homes after natural disasters. Are you doing that so you can get another merit badge as a good deed-doer of the year? No. Are you doing it to make this country great, stamp out all poverty? If all poverty is not stamped out, then you wasted your time. No. It's about reflecting the love of God a God who comes to redeem things that are destroyed in the world. You're just doing what you think Jesus would do if he walked up and saw that. Those of you who are students who are starting out your career, you're studying hard, working hard in your first career, and you're doing that so you can move up the ladder and be the boss of everybody, right? Mm, I hope not. You're doing it so you can build the company into a global economic power that will crush out all the competition and take over everything. Uh, I hope not again. It's about taking the gifts God is giving you and using them in a way that serves this world, His world. And if you think about each of your occupations, if you think about it, they each provide something this world needs, no matter what they are. We're meant to do His work. Focusing on yourself, focusing on your greatness, that ends badly every time. We've all seen the stories, we all know the stories. Some of us have lived the stories. Focusing on making your family perfect. Focusing on making the company awesome. Focusing on making the country awesome. It all works for a while, doesn't it? And then it doesn't work anymore. Never turns out how we imagined it, does it? I mean, finally, the family has to lie to keep that squeaky clean image for everybody. Finally, the company has to lie to tell the stockholders, oh, everything's always up and to the right here. We never have a dip of any kind. Finally, the country has to lie to hang on to power and cover up its mistakes. Some other president can declassify and apologize 40 years later. But the Bible is true. The word of God is true and it doesn't tell us any lies. And the good and the bad is all laid out here. The wins, Peter, and the losses, James, are all told here. And This good news sets us free, and here's the good news that sets us free. We don't have to be awesome. We don't have to make ourselves great. We don't have to make our families great. We don't have to make our careers great. We don't have to make our country great. We only have to do this, to be faithful to God in all things. And he will walk with us. And why will he walk with us? Not because we're awesome. Thank God. Not because we're awesome. Because he loves us. He promises he'll never leave us. And he knows the truth. And he tells us the truth. And he's all powerful. And in the end, he will set all things right. He is the God of the upside down. Come to set all things right. Take the soldier. Take the soldier who's in a foxhole and falls on a hand grenade to save his friends. But miraculously, it doesn't go off. Take the soldier who falls on a grenade to save his friends and it does go off. Which one's a hero? Which one's blessed by God? Both, of course. Both reflected God's willingness to give his own life to save his friends. Both will stand before God in eternity. The one who lived and the one who died because it wasn't about that. It was about reflecting the love of God. One of them is the Apostle Peter. One of them is the Apostle James. Both sent by God to their moment. Anne Frank. A lot of us read Anne Frank's diary in school, her time hiding from the Nazis. And Corrie ten Boom. A lot of us read uh, her story about her own hiding place. One died in a concentration camp. One was set free from a concentration camp by a paperwork error in the camp office. Walking down the sidewalk toward the train. Which one blesses the world? Which one's blessed by God? Both, of course. Both reflect God's willingness to suffer without retaliating, to hang on to your values and your heart and who you are, even when you're faced with the most incredible evil. Both will stand with God in eternity. The living one and the dying one, because it wasn't about that. One is the Apostle James, and one is the Apostle Peter, and they're both sent by God. So the book of Hebrews uh, has a part where it talks about all the ones who are celebrated and stand before God, and some of them lived and some of them died. Let's hear from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped death by the edge of the sword. Might that be Peter? Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back from death. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. And others were killed with the sword. Might that be James? Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all God had promised for God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. We're all headed toward the same story. As James approached the headman's sword, I'm sure he thought, I have been faithful to my God. I have spread this good news of Jesus Christ. Today is not about my greatness. It's about the love of God and the peace of God reflected in me. As Peter walked down that street and realized this is not a dream. You are free from prison. I'm sure he thought there must be a reason for this. I must be faithful and continue to spread this good news of Jesus. It's not about my greatness. It's about the peace and love of God reflected in me. Don't compare the living ones to the dying ones in these stories. Comparing leads to despairing, especially if you're still in the upside down world trying to figure out why all this is happening. If you're the one who's suffering, if you're the one who's going to die, you might be tempted to think, well, I must not have served God well enough. But that's not true. If you're the one who's suffering, you're the one who's going to die, you might be tempted to think, I guess God has no further need of me. But that's not what it's about. What did I do wrong, you might ask? Comparing leads to despairing. Because it's not about that. What does this passage say that James did wrong? Nothing. What does this passage say that Peter did that was so much more right? Nothing. Some live, some die. Some suffer, some are saved. Because that's not what matters. What matters is faithfulness. Let's get this clear this morning. If God saves you from your suffering, if God doesn't save you from your suffering, did he owe you something? Did you do something that made you extra special compared to James? You know, sin affects the world. My sin affects me, my family, my friends, and all of you sometimes. And your sin affects the people around you. And everyone's sin affects everybody else in the world. In fact, if anything in this world happens in the next five minutes other than we nuke ourselves into oblivion, that's the grace of God. Because there's a lot of evil in this world. With all the evil in this world, we should have nuked ourselves out of existence about three decades ago. But we didn't. And not because we're awesome. Because of the grace of God. It has kept going. And when we realize because of the grace of God, it's kept going that every minute beyond this minute is an undeserved grace of God. Then you're free. Then you can be courageous. Then you can find your true purpose and live without fear. And you can become an unstoppable power for him. And only just now are you truly human. I got nothing. That was going to be the title of my message. I got nothing. I got nothing that makes me great, and neither do you. We walk with God, and we know he walks with us through the good and the bad. Story called Calm in the Storm, Ron Mel. It says, a woman caught in a frightening storm in the middle of Atlantic had kept all the little children on board from panicking by telling them Bible stories. Now, I was in the Atlantic during a storm this last year. 15-foot waves looking out the portal, and we had that water-level portal. (laughs) Then I heard the captain say the next day that when they originally brought the ship across the Atlantic, they were in a storm with 40-foot waves. So that's a 20-foot wall. So just put a wave double that height on that side of you and another one over there, and just put yourself between it. She kept the little children on board from panicking by telling them Bible stories. After finally reaching the dock safely, the ship's captain approached the woman whom he had observed in the midst of the tempest. How were you able to maintain your calm when everyone feared the ship would sink in the storm? The captain asked her. As she looked up, he noted the same quiet peace in her eyes that she had maintained throughout the journey. I have two daughters, exclaimed the Christian woman. One of them lives in New York, the other lives in heaven. I knew I would see one or the other of my daughters in a few hours, and it really didn't matter to me which one. That's what this journey is about becoming someone who can face death bravely and have peace in every situation, at the edge of the sword freed from prison by an angel. Now, most of us aren't stuck in the Atlantic between 40-foot waves, so here's a story that may meet you a little more where you live. It's by Judy Bodmer. It says, Uh, it's called, uh, Why I'm a Sports Mom. It's Saturday in May. I could be home curled up on the couch with a good mystery. Instead, I'm sitting on a cold metal bench in the stands of a baseball park. An icy wind creeps through my jacket. I blow on my hands wishing I'd brought my woolen mittens. In May, this county's moved further south. Miss Bodmer, my son's says it's my son's coach. I thought you'd like to know we're going to start your son today in right field. He's worked hard this year. We think he deserves the opportunity. Thanks, I say, feeling proud of my son who has given this man and this team everything he has. I know how bad he wants to start. I'm glad his hard work is being rewarded. Suddenly, I'm nervous for him. I go to the concession stand and buy hot chocolate. Back in my seat, I hold it between my hands, blowing the steam in my face for warmth. The team in their white and blue pinstripe uniforms struts onto the field. They all look so much alike. I search for my son's number. It isn't there. Instead, Eddie takes right field. I look again, unbelieving. Yes, it's Eddie, the most inexperienced player on the team. How can this be? I glance at the coach, but he's absorbed in the game. I want to run over and ask, what's going on? But I know my son wouldn't like that. Over the last eight years, I've learned the proper etiquette for moms, and talking to the coach during the game is definitely not acceptable. My son grips the chain-link fence, which protects the bench from stray balls, and yells encouragement to his teammates. I try to read his nonverbals, but I know he's learned, like most men, to hide his feelings from the world. My heart breaks. So much hard work, so much disappointment. I don't understand what drives young boys to put themselves through this. boy, Eddie, yells someone nearby. It's Eddie's father. I can see him smiling, proud his son is starting. I shake my head because I've seen this same man walk out of games when his son dropped the ball or made a bad throw. But now he's proud. His son is starting. My son is on the bench. By the fourth inning, my fingers are stiff from the cold and my feet are numb. But I don't care. My son has been called into the game. As he comes up for bat, I glance at the dugout. He stands, sorts through batting helmets and chooses one. Please, I pray, let him get a hit. He picks up a bat, struts to the batter's box. I grip the metal seat as he takes a couple of practice swings, adjusts his batting gloves, steps up to the plate. The pitcher looks like an adult. I wonder if anybody checked his birth certificate. <laughs> Strike one. Nice swing, yell. The next pitch is a ball. Good eye, good eye. Strike two. The pitcher winds up for the throw. I hold my breath. Strike three. My son's head hangs and he walks back to the dugout. I look away knowing there's nothing I can do. For eight years, I've been sitting here. I've drunk gallons of terrible coffee, eaten my share of green hot dogs and salty popcorn. I've suffered from the cold and the heat, eaten dust, and sat in the rain. Some people wonder why a sane person would go through this. It's not because I want to fulfill my dream of excelling at sports through my children. And I also don't do this because of the emotional highs. Oh, yes, there have been a few. I've seen one or the other of my sons score the winning goal in soccer and hit a home run in baseball and spark a come-from-behind in basketball, but mostly I've seen heartache. I've waited at home with them for a phone call telling them they made the team. Phone calls that never came. I've seen them sit on the bench game after game and get up to bat only to strike out. I've sat in emergency rooms as their broken bones were set and swollen ankles x-rayed. I've watched coaches yell at them. I've sat here year after year observing it all and wondering why. The game is over. I stretch my legs and try to stomp life back into my frozen feet. The coach meets with the team. They yell some rallying cry and then descend on their parents. I notice Eddie's dad slapping on the back with a big grin on his face. My son wants money for a hamburger. While I wait, the coach approaches me. I can't bring myself to look at him. Miss Bodmer, I want you to know that's a fine young man you have there. Why, I ask, waiting for him to explain why he broke my son's heart. When I told your son he could start, he thanked me and turned me down. He told me to let Eddie start, that it meant more to him. I turned to watch my son stuffing a burger into his mouth. I realized then why I sit in these stands. Where else can I watch my son grow into a man. That's why we're on this journey. It's not about winning or losing. It's not about starting or riding the bench. It's about becoming a people fit for eternity who reflect the love and the peace and the greatness of our creator. Rescued from prison and put back on the field to complete the mission or permanently benched at the edge of a sword. I got nothing that decides which of these two come to me and neither to you. We walk with God and we know God walks with us through the good and the bad. What other choices are there? You can be saved from your suffering and rejoice. You can suffer and die, but in your suffering reflect the peace of God. Those are your right-side-up choices. You have some upside-down choices if you want. You can lose your faith over all this and become bitter. You can compromise your faith and quit trying to reflect the love of God and just run to something that's easier. And if you do that, there's still a right-side-up choice left for you. You can realize nothing is guaranteed in this life and turn to God today because it turns out you do need Him. And you can pray as many before you have prayed. God, I don't know if I'm going to get what I want on this one. But I will wait and see what God will do. That's your prayer. God, I don't know if I'm going to get what I want on this one. But I will wait and see what God will do. What do we get for all of this? Some live, some die. What difference does faith make? As someone who has laid many people to rest, let me tell you, dying with God or dying without God, it makes a difference. There is a big difference in the way a man or woman who knows God is with them passes out of this world and the way someone who's not so sure leaves this life. What do we get for faith if we all just suffer or die in the end anyway, including the Apostle Peter? We get this. We get the God who walks with us through it all to the end. There's a story that came out of the 92 Olympics recorded here by Ivan Mazel. Barcelona, Spain. Jim Redmond did what any father would do. His child needed help. It was that simple. The Olympic Games have the kind of security that thousands of policemen and metal detectors can offer, but no venue is safe when a father sees his son's dream drifting away. One minute I was running, Derek Redmond of Great Britain said. The next thing was a pop, and I went down. Derek, 26, had waited for this 400-meter semifinal for at least four years. In Seoul, he had had an Achilles tendon problem. He waited until a minute and a half before the race began before he would admit he couldn't run. In November 1990, Derek underwent operations on both Achilles tendons. He had five surgeries in all, But he came back. In the first two rounds, he had run 45.02 and 45.03, his fastest times in five years. I really wanted to compete in my first Olympics, Redmond said. I was feeling great. It just came out of the blue. Halfway around the track, Redmond laid sprawled across lane five, his right hamstring gone bad. Redmond struggled to his feet and began hobbling around the track. The winner of the Heat, defending Olympic champion Steve Lewis, had finished and headed toward the tunnel. So had the other six runners. But the last runner in the Heat hadn't finished. He continued to run. Jim Redman, Derek's dad, sitting high in the stands at Olympic Stadium, saw Derek collapse. You don't need accreditation in an emergency room, Redman said. So Redman, a 49-year-old machine shop owner in Northampton, ran down the steps and onto the track. I was thinking, Jim Redman said, I had to get him there so he could say he finished the semifinal. The crowd realized that Derek Redman was running the race of his life. Around the stands, from around the world, the fans stood and honored him with cheers. At the final turn, Jim Redman caught up to his son and put his arm around him. Derek leaned on his dad's right shoulder and sobbed, but they kept going. An usher attempted to intercede and escort Jim Redman off the track if ever a futile mission had been undertaken. They crossed the finish line, father and son, arm in arm. This is what you get for faith, a father who runs with you to the end. I pray that we all get to be the Apostle Peter, released from prison at the very last hour by a miraculous messenger from God. But I also pray those of us who will be James, that we might suffer and die well for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray all of us will cling to faith that we might all stand together before God side by side. We're living and dying Winning and losing really don't matter anymore. Where We will all hear these words together from Matthew 25. Let's read them together. Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter in the joy of your master.